So today I am joined by Dr. Robert Slavin, who is a professor at Johns Hopkins University and director of the Center for Research and Reform in Education. Dr. Slavin has authored or co-authored more than 300 articles and book chapters on such topics as cooperative learning, comprehensive school reform, ability grouping, school and classroom organization, desegregation, school-based vision care, research review, and evidence-based reform. Also, he's the author or co-author of 24 books. He has won many awards, including the Palmer O. Johnson Award for the best article in an American Educational Research Association journal in 1988 and again in 2008, the Charles A. Dana Award in 1994, the James Bryant Conant Award from the Education Commission of the States in 1998, the Outstanding Leadership in Education Award from the Horace Mann League in 1999, the Distinguished Services Award from the Council of Chief State School Officers in 2000, the AERA Review of Research Award in 2009, and he was appointed as a member of the National Academy of Education in 2009 and an AERA Fellow in 2010. In 2017, he received a Career Achievement Award from Division 15 of the American Psychological Association. And in 2019, he was awarded the AERA Distinguished Contributions to Research and Education Award. Dr. Slavin's current work focuses on tutoring, whole school reform, and meta-analyses of effective programs in K-12 education. He has written extensively on evidence-based reform in education. And today we'll be discussing Bob's 2020 article in Educational Psychologist that was the focus of his Career Achievement Award talk. The article is entitled, How Evidence-Based Reform Will Transform Research and Practice in Education. Bob, thanks so much for joining me. I'm glad to be here. So can you start us off with just a brief summary of the main focus of your article? Well, I was mostly writing about evidence-based reform in education, trying to present to a uh, Division 15 audience a lot of the developments that have taken place in recent time, putting a lot more emphasis on recommendations of programs that had been proven to be effective in rigorous research. So I was sort of describing the state of that, uh, the evidence movement in education and applied it to a uh, particular case of RTI in special education to talk about how an evidence focus, focusing on using programs that have been proven to be effective at each of the levels of RTI could make RTI a lot more effective than it usually is. And so there's a lot to unpack in that particular article. So you started off arguing that educational researchers have much to offer districts and principals and teachers, but those groups are looking for particular kinds of input and particular kinds of advice or evidence. What do you think they're looking for and how can educational researchers better provide it? Well, in a way, I think that educators are interested in evidence, but they're often looking for kinds of evidence that are very difficult for them to uh, use to make a difference. Evidence means a lot of different things, of course, but there's a big difference between, let's say, knowing that a given program is proven effective, and then if you implement that program with care and attention to quality and so on, then you should get effects like those that were found in the research on average. And so that's a very direct way to use evidence. On the other hand, oftentimes what teachers get is things like, well, feedback is good. Hmm. Really? <laughs> what kind of feedback? For how long? Or what, you know, what, I mean, feedback as a variable, but it has many different levels and it's very difficult to put that into operation or, you know, feedback or effective grouping strategies. Well, what exactly are we talking about here? Or any number of variables that are often thrown at teachers. And then, you know, teachers will be glad to know those things and try to work them out in their own way. But 
you know, oftentimes there's evidence that particular variables or, or kinds of teaching behaviors can be counterproductive used in some ways and productive and used in others. And so it's very difficult to just sort of take a list of proven practices, proven variables, and know that you're really doing better. So my emphasis has been more on programs because those are very specific about exactly what we're talking about. Every program is composed of variables, but what's unlike the situation where you just know the variables, every program will provide professional development on the specific meaning of those variables that, you know, how to put them in practice and how to link them with other variables to actually produce something that makes a difference for kids. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I, I certainly have been guilty of um, offering advice in kind of a TED talk type way, you know, feedback is good or, you know, help your students feel like they belong. And often that can be difficult to implement. Whereas programs, like you said, include professional development, materials, a more robust suite of things that educators can use to really implement them with fidelity. So that focus on specific programs, I think, makes a lot of sense to me. And certainly it's hard to develop evidence for a generic principle, but it's uh, much more tractable to develop evidence for a specific program. Exactly. I remember years ago, Madeline Hunter was extraordinarily popular all over the U.S., and she had a seven-step lesson that had a number of, you know, well-proven variables that n nobody could falter in terms of the, the evidence base for those variables. But she taught those variables in a very appealing way and uh, many states picked this up and made that set of variables a uh, requirement for every teacher in the state that they learn those things and use them on a regular basis. Well, later on, people took that set of things that uh, she was teaching and uh, compared them in experiments to teachers who were in a control group, and invariably, the effects were zero. One of the things they found is that because those variables were so already so widely known, that learning her particular set didn't change behavior very much. So actually, it was hard to tell the experimental and control teachers apart. So it's very, very difficult to bring about reform and you know making things better just by having an appealing, well-described set of variables. Mm -hmm. And that leads nicely into some policy that you spoke about in your article that I'm not sure everyone's fully aware of. In the United States, uh, there's a federal law called the Every Student Succeeds Act. It was passed in 2015. Um, and that law kind of operationalizes different kinds of evidence. Could you talk to our listeners a little bit about how that law affects the kinds of evidence that educators might be seeking out and what it means for them? Well, the, the ESSA evidence standards could be, and sometimes are, really a hugely impactful policy because it is talking about programs, and what it's doing is defining, for the first time in history anywhere, defining what it means to have programs that are proven to be effective. So that there are three most important levels, the top levels, that if a program has been evaluated and proven effective in a randomized experiment, then it's considered strong evidence of effectiveness. If it's a matched experiment, then it's considered moderate. And if it's a correlational study, it's considered promising. Uh, so that was a very important thing to have in law. The difficulty was that people looked at that and went, uh, okay, I didn't go to graduate school for that. I don't understand <laughs> what those things are and how this affects, you know, what I do in my school or my classroom. Mm -hmm. 
So actually, we created uh, back in, in our research group at Johns Hopkins, uh, we found out that the What Works Clearinghouse, you know, which is in the business of providing information about what programs are effective or not, but they announced that they were not going to align with these standards, making it, again, very, very difficult for people to look for the evidence. So we created our own website called Evidence for ESSA that was designed to take those standards and to apply them in a consistent way to be able to identify initially reading programs and math programs for pre-K to 12 that met each of those kinds of standards that were either strong or moderate or promising. So that has been used about, a, well, I think our about 100,000 unique users over a period of time wow. uh, because, you know, people in schools really want to do the right thing and, you know, they're interested in the evidence, but, you know, they need something to kind of help translate. What are we talking here? How do we actually put that into practice? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that website sounds uh, critical for educators and it's a, it's a great service that you're doing having that. And then I know that you also have an associated website, the Best Evidence Encyclopedia, for researchers, how is that different than the Evidence for ESSA website? The difference is it's not only the, the fact that it's for researchers, but also that these are academic articles, essentially. All of the entries in the Best Evidence Encyclopedia are published or they're in the process of being published if they're very new. So it just makes the evidence base more available. But in a review article, what you're able to do that you can't do in something like Evidence for ESSA is talk about categories of programs or to to say, well, here's the effect size for this particular program. Well, that's what uh, both the What Works Clearinghouse and Evidence for ESSA do. But a full-scale academic review will say, well, this is what this whole category of things looks like. And it can put things right next to each other so that you can compare the effectiveness of one kind of program versus another, either one category versus another or one individual program versus another. So it's really, you know, each has its own strengths and and weaknesses, but we kind of work on both together. So in general, when we're working on a review of research in a given area, that review of research will go on to the best evidence encyclopedia. And then we will treat it in a different way that we do in evidence for ESSA, and it will go on there as well. You know, so you kind of get the best of both. And again, that's a really important service, and I'm grateful that you're doing that. You know, I've been reading a lot recently about how it's been wonderful that researchers have begun more transparently reporting effect sizes, but the literature on what effect sizes mean and how we should compare them is still not where it needs to be. I mean, people are still relying upon Cohen's almost out-of-the-air rules of thumb. What you're describing is comparing different effect sizes within a category to determine what's normative and what's typical and then, you know, what might be really promising. So it's not the same across each category. I think that's a really important service. Well, I never really understand why people have so much trouble with effect sizes because you don't have to understand where they came from. All you have to know, really, as long as things are honestly reviewed and and reported, all you have to worry about is bigger is better. So who cares, <laughs> right. you know, what exactly what it means, as long as you know that whatever they are, you like more of them, you know, mm-hmm. consistent with what your needs and circumstances are. And so sometimes I think when people say, well, I don't know what effect sizes are, I, I, I wonder sometimes whether they, whether really that's just a way to kind of push the whole thing away, rather than that they really couldn't understand that more effect sizes are better than less effect sizes. Sure. 
And I think what you do is you put all the effect sizes in a category in one place so they can look and they can say, okay, I see which ones are larger. I see how much larger I'm getting a sense of the efficacy of the different programs. I think you're right. It doesn't, you don't necessarily need to know much about standard deviation units or anything else, uh, but having one place where you can go that collects all that information and displays it for you easily. I think that's really valuable and important. Right. And, and in a way it, it also gives you context kind of a solution to the Cohen problem that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. because it kind of gives you context for what's a big effect size and what's a small effect size in a given area. Right. So for example, if you're looking at technology programs and you got an effect size of 0.15, that would be worth really cheering about. That's very rare that technology programs get an effect size that large. If you saw a tutoring program, one-to-one or one-to-small group tutoring program, and you got an effect size of 0.15, you'd say, well, why would I pay any attention to that? I've got you know, a couple dozen tutoring programs that have uh, effect sizes of 0.4, 0.5. Mm-hmm. So, so you deal with those things for a while and you begin to see what is worth paying attention to and what's not from just looking at the effect sizes that are characteristic in a given area. Mm-hmm. And you know, we, we put a lot of effort into trying to make sure that these things are fair to compare mm-hmm. so that we use rigorous inclusion standards, for example, so that you don't have a uh, poorly done study mm-hmm. that with a giant effect size mm-hmm. uh, looking like it's more effective than a very well done rigorous study that has a much smaller one. Right. We make sure that they're all very rigorous studies or you know, measures or what have you so that it's a, you can make more of a fair comparison of one study against another or you know, one category against another. Sure. Yeah. Garbage in, garbage out. That's true. So we've talked about educators and their needs. We've talked about researchers. Another group that you identify in your article are is the government. And you talk about incentives. What's your view of government incentives when it comes to evidence-based reform? I think that it is really critical to have uh, incentives, or at least you could use a, a different description. Everything that is more effective than, than current practice has a cost to it. Some more, some less, you know, Mm -hmm. get into a whole different issue on uh, cost effectiveness. But everything has a cost. And so if the government is saying, listen, we'd like to encourage you to use things that are proven effective and we can provide some money that will defray some or all of the cost of doing it, then it makes it less scary. I mean, you know, I think people are very unwilling, very anxious about putting serious money into using an innovative program, even if the results are known to be very good, because they don't know if it'll really work for them. And, you know, they could end up wasting quite a lot of money. Whereas if you have some incentive funding or some funding to defray the cost of things, then it's much safer to take it on Mm -hmm. and then see what it does and, you know, whether you therefore want to keep it. Mm -hmm. So that that makes sense to me. And, uh, you know, what struck me about your article was it really describes this kind of ecosystem of evidence-based reform where, you know, you talk about the standards for evaluation and evidence generation and scale up. You talk about what researchers need and educators need and how the government can help. And it allows for this transparency into options available to educators. And I guess one thing that I wondered was what kind of values or guidelines do you think are needed to ensure that that ecosystem, the whole thing is effective and equitable? Well, I think it's, it's crucial that Uh, In addition to providing incentive funding, I think government needs to make available very rigorous research and clearly communicate it. Mm. You know, we made our uh, websites on no money 
at all. Literally, you know, we put together bits of uh, money that we could find. We had some very small grants that, that helped us a little bit where the What Works Clearinghouse spends about $10 million a year on it. Hmm. But ours is used a great deal because it's clear and because it's consistent, because we put a lot of effort and transparency into saying, this is how we got these numbers. We didn't just make them up. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is how we got these numbers. And we can explain you know, pretty clearly what the outcomes are and what the programs are and make it very easy to use. Mm-hmm. No reason that government couldn't have done that. And um, I'm hoping that it will. I'd be so happy to go out of business and let the government do this. But fundamentally, education is a government monopoly. Mm. And with the exception of private schools, which are very small in number, it's a government monopoly. And so it's it's impossible to imagine major change without government at least encouraging and probably incenting or you know providing money to help people implement proven programs and practices. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So let's drill down a little bit more. You know, we're talking about evidence-based reform. What's a good example of an evidence-based reform that people should know about and be considering? I am so glad you asked. (laughs) There's something that we're working on right now, pretty much Mm 24-7. This has to do with tutoring. Everyone knows that as kids are coming back from the uh, COVID-19 school closures, that they're going to be far behind Uh, especially disadvantaged kids, many of whom couldn't get on computers for remote learning or couldn't get adequate time or support. And so that there are going to be a lot of kids who are going to be coming back in very, very bad shape. Mm. And just so happened that we did reviews of research on what works for struggling readers and another one on what works for students in elementary mathematics that made side-by-side comparisons of the various kinds of programs. And in both cases, Tutoring just blows everything else out of the water. Hmm. Now, that's not big news. Everybody knows tutoring is effective. But in the past, the belief was, still is, that tutoring is so expensive that nobody can actually afford to do it. Hmm. And back when tutoring was mostly, let's say, reading recovery, that was true. But what's happened, in fact, even the people who made reading recovery are, are doing this as well, But what's happened is that now increasingly people have found proven programs, effective programs that involve using teaching assistants rather than certified teachers as tutors. And they involve one to small group rather than uh, one to one instruction. Mm -hmm. And they're getting effect sizes very much like those of the one to one with a certified teacher. And so what's happened then is that at this particular moment, Tutoring has become much more affordable and more widespread in terms of, you know, large number of different programs that are operating. And the need for tutoring is overwhelming because Mm -hmm. the other things that people talk about to do to help with kids coming back from school just don't make much difference. In some cases, they don't make any difference. And so we're working with people who are connected with the Biden administration who are helping us to propose to the Biden administration a national tutoring corps that would involve hiring about 100,000 tutors who are college graduates, may or may not have teaching certificates, mm-hmm. uh, to work with low-achieving students in Title I schools all over the country. And part of this is these tutoring programs should be terribly effective, and they're known to be readily replicable if you're careful about the quality of implementation. So it's a very good thing for kids. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, what we hope will happen is that this could be a demonstration for the the first time really in history 
where a very large federal program required or in, and encouraged use of uh, particular programs and practices known to be effective. Hmm. So that at the end of this, if, if it is funded, which could happen if it is funded, and at the end of a period of time, we say, dang, that actually worked. This time is a federal program that really made a difference for kids in, in big trouble. And somebody's going to say, you think we could do that with algebra? Hmm. You think we could do that with uh, with fifth grade science? You think that we could do that with uh, creative writing? You think we could do that with uh, programs for English learners? Of course you could. I mean, the, the concept would be just the same, but it just so happens that in this emergency, we have an opportunity to really put our, you know, our reform where our mouths are and, and go at this problem the way you would a medical problem. You know, you, you don't just say, hey, let's have uh, some medicines. I don't know what kind, but go do some medicines and see if it works. Right. You know, you if, if you have a crisis in medicine, you have specific treatments that are proven to work that you then work out how to scale up and you make sure that, that everybody gets them as quickly and, and effectively as possible. Mm -hmm. You see this happening right now with the vaccines, but that's hardly the first. Mm -hmm. I don't know why education should be any different from that, but for some reason, every time the government comes up with you know well-meaning kinds of programs they leave such vagueness about what are we talking about and what's the evidence base that at the end of a period of time there's a very expensive evaluation that finds that the effects were very 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 small mm -hmm. and hopefully this could be a chance to say no that doesn't have to be that way mm -hmm. and you know it's it's a tragedy that it is needed but there's an opportunity here as you said to really make a difference and demonstrate that education really can produce changes in practice that can lead to positive benefits for students so it strikes me as a unique opportunity um, and it's it's reassuring to hear that you've thought carefully about the evidence as to which what to do right with this opportunity um, i'll be very excited to see what happens with yeah your attempts to convince the biden administration to implement that. Yeah, well, you know, we're, we're, we're hopeful, but, um, you know, there are other proposals out there and, mm -hmm. and uh, all kinds of politics and everything else. Sure. But it's just so simple and, and compelling to me anyway, and should be to others, mm -hmm. I would hope. I mean, in a way, it's like penicillin was invented in the early 20s, mm -hmm. but nobody knew how to replicate it. So it was kind of a medical curiosity and in about 1937, 1938, when they knew that war was coming, the British said, you know, we better look into this penicillin because it's going to be needed on a massive scale for wounded soldiers and for diseases that are going to come up and so on. They checked and they found that the entire supply of penicillin in the world was enough for one man. Hmm. Well, they said, but we've got this proof. We know that this would make a huge difference. And so they contracted with some American companies uh, to figure out a way to grow the supply of penicillin, which they did, and saved millions and millions of lives in World War II. Mm -hmm. We are in a situation like that where, you know, that had there not been World War II, I mean, that, I'm not saying there's anything good about having wars or pandemics, but had they not happened, then life would have gone along, you know, the way it had been, mm -hmm. and there'd be no penicillin, and there would be business as usual in education. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the fact is, We've had a crisis in education for decades about students who don't learn to read or they're struggling in mathematics, and we have proven techniques, but they don't get used very often. Mm -hmm. Maybe this crisis will provide an opportunity 
to do what we could have done at any time, but just didn't. You know, you, you used a term in there, uh, replication. That's a term that you used in the article, and I very much appreciated that in your article, you, you made a strong case for evidence-based reform, but you also acknowledge that there are criticisms. And I suspect some people listening um, may be thinking of some of those criticisms. And one of them is, you know, do, do these successful programs replicate? Do they work in other contexts with other students in um, different situations? Uh, what would be your response to people who might have those kinds of questions about the replicability and generalizability of um, evidence-based reform? Well, it, it is a serious problem. You know, I, I wouldn't want to diminish it at all. But on the other hand, I think that if you have something that you know to be effective with some groups, at least it's a pretty good candidate to check out whether it's also effective with other groups or with other circumstances or with older or younger kids or what have you. And if you've done enough replication, enough repeated evaluations of programs, you can get a pretty good idea that this either is generalizable or it works terrifically with this subgroup of kids. And that's a major finding in itself. Mm -hmm. So to say that we don't know for sure that the fact that something works in one place means it will work in others, that's a rather straightforward scientific problem that you also have in medicine and other scientific fields. And uh, you can test it and see whether it generalizes or what makes it generalize. I think the bigger problem, actually, because most things do generalize, by the way, if they're well implemented, they generally do generalize quite extensively because a group of kids, you know, their problems with reading are not so different from, I mean, the degree of the problem may be different, but this, the categories of reading problems or math problems or science problems are not so different from place to place. Perhaps if they are, then we find that out. But the, the bigger problem is that oftentimes programs, especially initially, are evaluated under kind of perfect conditions, and the teachers get a lot more professional development than they might get later on, and they might get higher quality you know, services of one kind or another, and then that's hard to maintain. And my answer is, well, if you find something that makes a very big difference, and it requires more professional development than you would like to pay for, or it requires a better set of circumstances, then you're crazy. Because if it makes a very big difference, the cost of those additional things to make that uh, program or practice used effectively the way it was in the successful studies is not that expensive. But we just have kind of this idea, well, that, since, you know, since now you're doing it at a big scale, then you have to do trainer of trainers and you have to cut corners here and cut corners there and so on. And then the things don't work anymore. And you say, well, there you go. So that's, that's just their, those scientists in their ivory towers. But if you had a commitment from the outset to be sure that the quality of implementation in dissemination is as good as the quality was in the studies that demonstrated the program at a serious scale, then I think you could have the quality of the outcomes stay at a high level. But that just hasn't happened very often. I think that's one of the things that in our proposal having to do with tutoring, one of the things we emphasize a great deal. Look carefully at what they did in that study and make sure you're providing at least as good professional development, materials, software, whatever it was that made it work to make sure that you're going to get the outcome that previous researchers have found. And that brings to mind for me, this idea of equitable education funding and the role of state and federal 
governments in ensuring that we have equitable funding to allow districts to implement these things in ways that we are confident they will have a good opportunity to be effective. And I know that much of education reform is moving towards examining structures and systems and the ways in which inequality get perpetuated by those structures and systems. Uh, I'm just wondering, do you have any advice for people who are seeking education reform at that level and what they can do to mirror some of your success? Well, our system of education funding is shameful. It's just shameful. There's no other word for it. I do a lot of work in other countries around the world. I was working part-time in England, for example, for 10 years. And every once in a while, you know, people would ask, well, you know, what are the funding systems that are used in the U.S.? And I say, well, they're based on, you know, most states, they're based on uh, property tax. They go, no, that couldn't be the case. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, I'd have to describe the situation six or seven times before they would believe that I didn't misunderstand the question. Because no other country does that. No other country would provide less money to high poverty places. They provide more money to high poverty places because they obviously need it. Mm-hmm. And that's true of, of you know, places like Spain or Italy. You know, this is not just Germany or you know, the Scandinavian countries in, in England, but this is really you know, throughout the developed world, this is standard. This is what people understand has to be done. And why we can't do that is just, I think it's just absolutely shameful. Mm. And everybody knows it, by the way, but this is not a secret. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, money does not solve the problems by itself. Mm. The question is, what is the money spent on? And quite often, even in circumstances where high poverty schools get a lot more money, they don't see improved outcomes. And one of the most important aspects of my argument is yeah, money is needed because, you know, change is going to cost money and innovation or use of uh, better programs is going to cost money. But we need to be spending the money on something that we know will make the difference that we're trying to get to rather than, you know, just rectifying inequality. Mm-hmm. I mean, regardless, I think it's it's right to have at least equality and, and hopefully more than equality for high poverty schools just in terms of funding level. But to really make a difference, that money needs to be used on something that's sure to work. Mm. That makes sense to me. And I I can recall arguments where people say, well, you know, you throw money at education problems and nothing happens. And I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. If you throw money at a problem and implement something that is unlikely to work, well, then, of course, the money didn't have an effect. Um, You're advocating for a evidence-based way of achieving educational equity via the evidence that you produce. So that's an important point that I'm glad that you brought forward. Right. I know another educational innovation or reform that people think about quite a bit is response to intervention, RTI. Um, How how does that fit within how you think about evidence-based reform? And, And what should we do with RTI? I think RTI is a is a brilliant policy, uh, wonderful, much better than what existed before, but it's not getting the kind of outcomes that people really hoped for. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the idea that every teacher, every school basically has to make up their own strategies for uh, making sure that tier one prevention and tier two intervention and tier three intensive intervention are of high quality. Uh, well, everybody has their own conceptions of high quality, and um, and the result is that a lot of kids continue to fall through the cracks. 
They end up with an IEP at great expense, very hard to get out of special education. And I think that there are many, many children who are really getting very little from the special education system. And first off, they could have been prevented from being in special education. And secondly, even if they are there, the great majority of them, or about half of them in the high incidence categories, could be excused from special education if they could learn to read. And I think that they all can, uh, with very, very few exceptions, or learn mathematics or succeed behaviorally. There are proven programs for each of these things, then that's what kids should be getting with or without the special education system. Mm. Yes, it, it strikes me that there won't be any response if the intervention isn't efficacious. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the kind of work that you're doing with Evidence for ESSA and the kind of evidence-based education reform that you are advocating, I think is critical across so many aspects of education practice and research. And I'm certainly grateful for what you're doing. And I, I really encourage our readers to check out your article where you talk about these issues and others that are um, really helpful. Again, that article is entitled How Evidence-Based Reform Will Transform Research and Practice in Education. And it's in issue one of the 2020 volume of Educational Psychologists. So Bob, thank you again for all you're doing and thank you for talking to us today. Okay, thank you. Thank you.